In Acts chapter number 4, this is shortly after Christ has uh, been resurrected. He has spent time walking around uh, amidst his followers, and then he ascends up into heaven from Mount Carmel. And then the disciples are given that great commission, and they are sent forth out to share and to spread the gospel. And Peter and John, one of the first places they go with this new commission is they go into the temple. Now, you might think that a place that is dedicated to the worship of God might be a harbor or a haven for them to go to. I mean, these people are worshiping the Creator God, the Jehovah God of the Old Testament, the God that told them about a coming Messiah who would be persecuted, who would be sacrificed and ultimately shed His blood and be wounded and pierced with many sorrows for the people of Israel and for the whole world. So you would think then that this sacred religious place that is dedicated to the shedding of blood for the forgiveness or the covering, I should say, of sins and in the temple would be a harbor, a safe haven for Peter and John to go and to take the gospel to the lost world. But that's not what ends up happening. They're on their way up to the temple to worship, and on the way, they come to the gate of the temple, the gate called Beautiful, the Beautiful Gate. And there, sitting outside that gate, as often would occur, would be beggars. Those who are afflicted, who are wounded, who are uh, struggling with physical problems, blind maybe. They would be sitting there around those gates. Why? Well, begging money. Why? Well, because here you have people coming. It's a, a, a religious day. They're coming here to the temple to worship. And so everybody's trying to be good, you know. Uh, everybody is going to be basically passing this way at some point in the day because it is the Sabbath day. And so they sit there and they're begging alms. And it is, it is required of the Jews. They are told that they are to give alms to the poor because there was no social services then. Uh, there was no safety security net for people uh, who had disabilities uh, to be able to earn money for themselves. This was how it was done in their society. You sat next to the gate, and as people made their way to the temple, you gave them money so that you could help provide for them for that week for food and the necessities of life. Peter and John come up to this man, and he calls out to them. This man is about 40 years old. Anybody can relate? Uh, And uh, he has been lame his entire life. So he's not been able to walk his entire life. We'll revisit that in thought in a little bit. He sits there and uh, Peter and John walk up to him. And just like you can imagine, we see a lot of panhandlers, you know, in the area. There was a lot of panhandlers in South Florida. Um, You'd see them. They they, they come by in in 16 passenger vans and drop them off at different places, you know, entrances to interstates and whatnot. And then they'd come through at the end of the day and pick them all back up in the 16 passenger van. Somebody did. I don't know who planned it all out and put them out there. And um, they were, you know, collecting all this money in, but this was the, the, the social safety net for them. Peter and John walk up to him and the guy, he, he maybe brightens up a little bit here. Somebody's coming to me. I'm going to get something from them. And Peter and John say to this man, silver and gold, have I none? I'm sorry, brother. I don't have any money to give you, but I have something that is far more valuable to give you. And if we were to look back in Acts chapter number three, It says in verse number five that he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. It's a very captivating story. We're given so much information here in, in almost three chapters of the Bible, of the book of Acts, about this specific moment, or mostly two chapters, about this specific healing and the events surrounding it. Now, somebody might say, one of those Bible skeptics, they might say, well, pastor, um, don't you know that if somebody has never walked their entire life, even if they did get all of their muscles back, their bone density is going to be so weak that they're not going to be able to stand on those bones. And on top of that, they never learned how to walk. So they're not going to have the muscle memory or the balance to be able to walk. So it doesn't matter if they get their muscles back, how are they going to walk? And you know what my response is? Oh man, I wish God would have thought of that. <laughs> Boy, it's too bad that God uh, was able to heal the muscles but not strengthen the bone density and give the man balance and the ability to walk. How ridiculous of us to try to explain away God's miracles. He operates outside time. He operates outside of, of the natural way. And remember, like we talked about last Sunday morning, if he was powerful enough to create the law, that means he had to exist before the law, outside the law. All of the laws of gravity, all the laws of physics and science, he had to, there, there had to be somebody powerful enough to create them, to put them into place, and then to uphold them and enforce them. This is who God is. So yeah, it's quite possible that God could have strengthened those man's bone, his bone density. Oh yes, God had to have given him the ability to balance and to walk, even though he had never learned to do so in 40 years of his life. There's no point in spending much time in that, in that segment, is it? The whole point is, is this. The Bible says that God miraculously healed this man. Now, did Peter and John heal this man? Well, we know the answer to that is no. It wasn't Peter's power or John's power. And Peter and John want to make sure that the, the, the crowd knows this, and they're going to say that a little bit later. Well, as they go into the temple, uh, they begin to gather a large crowd of people around them. I mean, I'm talking a large crowd of people there in Solomon's porch. We've talked about it before. Gentiles were not supposed to go into this area of Solomon's porch. Uh, but here you have this very large, wide open space where large crowds would gather before, after, other times. Uh, usually, if you wanted to sit down and, and have a meeting with a group of people and talk to them concerning religious things, if you were a Pharisee or a Sadducee or teach a specific class, this would be a good place for you to go because there's a wide expanse and you could go and you could sit on a chair and then all the people listening to you, uh, your followers or whatever, could sit on the ground around you and you could teach them in this open area. That's why the disciples, the apostles, Jesus, Jesus himself even, went to this area and began to teach. So as he and this, this man who everybody has known his entire life has been lame, is walking and leaping and praising God for what he has done, that's going to draw some attention, is it not? And they go in to Solomon's porch and crowds begin to gather. Hey, did you, did you see that man? He's been lame his whole life and now he's jumping? Somebody says that those guys over there did it. What? Really? Let's go find out. And they all begin to head. And the Bible says there at the end of where um, we read, well, let's see, in, in chapter 4, verse 4, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. I don't know if this number applies to those that believed or if this number applies to those that were there. But if you think about it, there was about 5,000 men there. You know, that's besides, you know, anybody else that might have been there. But there were 5,000 men there that were listening to this or more. 
That's quite a crowd that Peter and John are standing up and are preaching the gospel according to Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Who healed him? Who healed him? They shouted from the back of the crowd. Jesus did it. Jesus healed them. Well, Jesus isn't here. So who really healed them? Was it, was it you, Peter? Was it you, John? No, no, Jesus healed them. It was in the name of Christ, the Sanhedrin. This is a ruling body. This is a religious governing body of Israel. They didn't have really that much power because the whole area was ruled by Rome at that time. Uh, Israel was a conquered people, a ruled people. But the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 religious elders there in the city of Jerusalem, and they had some power to make some rulings. The Sanhedrin were not happy about this. Prior to this, you know, they had been instrumental in seeking the death of Jesus Christ and ensuring that the people were stirred up against Jesus. And so they used bribery and they used lies to stir up the Jews of Jerusalem against Jesus to get him crucified, to, to, to twist Pilate's arm so that he would give in to the crowd and let Jesus be killed so that they could remove their number one religious enemy. Imagine that, Jesus being your number one religious enemy. And you're supposedly worshiping God. How many religions and cults today, Jesus is their number one enemy and they don't even realize it. They use his name. They talk about him. But they believe exactly opposite of who he is and what he has done. And he, in reality, is their number one religious enemy. The Sanhedrin needed rid of him. And so they they uh, threatened and they declared war on Christianity. And here we see the very first persecution of the disciples after Christ's death. So they go and they grab these, these men, Peter and John, and they, they bring them. It's, night, it's, it's evening time. Now's not the time to gather together a big meeting. So they take them and they throw them in jail for the night. And then the next morning, they gather the Sanhedrin, the these ruling body together. And they said, now we need to deal with these men. Bring them before us so that we can deal with them. And they ask this very pointed question, a very important question. By what power, there in verse 7, by what power or what name have you done this? Oh, you can have religion, but if you don't have Christ, that is all it is. You can have fake healings, but if you don't have Jesus Christ, that's all you have. We see the importance of the name of Jesus Christ in this passage. By what name have ye done this? What are they asking? Uh, think about this. If you were to drive down the road and you were to see uh, you know, people with sandwich signs on or other signs, um, maybe you're not like this. I'm like this. I want to identify them. I want to know who they are, what they're there for, and more importantly, I want to know what group has put them out there. You know, who's behind it? Uh, that's just the way I think. And so if I see somebody out street, pre street preaching, I want to be able to identify not just their name, but what church or denomination, you know, what background are they coming from? Because that's just how I am. I like to categorize people. Uh, and uh, so I want to be able to find out what category to put those people in. I see a group over here. I want to, you know, protesting or holding signs. I want to be able to categorize, you know, what are they protesting for? What group has kind of pushed this uh, over there? And that's kind of what they're asking. Like, okay, you guys caused a big stir, you know, almost like a, like a riot, you know, in a sense. It wasn't violent, but man, you caused a big stir in the temple yesterday. Uh, what, 
well, you know, what's the name of the, the person that, that you know, you're, you're part of a cult, obviously. So what's the name of the person that you're following, guys? You know, well, sometimes we label cults by the name of the person they're following, and that's, that's natural for us to do so. Or we label specific groups that are outliers by the name of the person who started it. So who's the name of the person that you're doing these things? And they ask specifically, in whose name did you heal this man? Why? They want to find out if Peter and John are filled with the devil and they're doing these things by the power of the devil, or they want to know if they're doing this by God's power. It's their duty, <clears throat> they feel, to vindicate or justify this healing for all of the people's sake. If everybody's going to believe it, then we need to be able to stand up and say, this was evil or this was right and it was done by God. We have to have some sort of a ruling for the people. So they ask that question. And Peter responds, being filled with the Holy Ghost. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Peter. Peter who went from... I will die with you, Jesus Christ. I will be thrown in prison with you, Jesus Christ. They'll never be able to separate us. I will never be ashamed of you. If they're going to hit me or hit you, they're going to have to hit me first, Jesus. And then just hours later, I don't know who Jesus is. What? I'm not one of those guys. I don't follow Jesus. And then cursing to emphasize the fact that he doesn't know. He was so ashamed at that moment of Christ because he was afraid he was going to get arrested too. Remember how Jesus, we, or I'm sorry, Peter, we talked about that moment, how he went from, you know, <clears throat> you know, talking big about himself to mm, shame, denying Christ. But now we find Peter in a different time, in a different context. And what happens here? Peter stands up boldly for the name of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says there in verse 8, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel, he says, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel. And he's about to, say, about to say something extremely unpopular. He's about to say something that the newspapers and the websites and the tabloids are going to go crazy over because he had the nerve to mention this name. This is still a sore spot in Jerusalem, especially with these men. These men, and some of their names who are mentioned here, who were there, who watched, who weaseled their way into the hearts of the people of Jerusalem to turn them against Jesus. So he's about to say something that is going to be wholly unpopular right now. He says <clears throat> that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, <clears throat> and if it's me, if I'm Peter at this point, you know what I'm going to start doing? I'm going to start talking a little faster. You know why? Because I'm expecting there to be some booze and some, some uh, other noise, people getting upset, some chatter, and it's going to be hard to hear the rest of what I'm saying. I'm afraid they're going to cut me off before I can get all the words out. So if I'm Peter, I can. this is just me imagining what must have gone down. I probably would have started speaking a little bit faster and a little bit louder just to make sure that every single word gets out there before somebody gets a chance to cut me off. He says that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucify. And that bony fisherman's finger, well, maybe not bony, it was probably thick. It was probably meaty. That meaty fisherman's finger pointing out there at that Sanhedrin, that 70 men sitting in a circle there around him. It's by the name of Jesus Christ, do you crucify? Oh. Well, now he's made a pretty, pretty uh, hefty accusation here, justified, but he says, whom God raised from the dead, 
You had him killed. God knew better and raised him from the dead. Even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. And then he goes and he quotes Old Testament scriptures, which these guys are supposed to be knowledgeable and experts on. He says, this is the stone which was set at naught of by you builders. This was a stone that God made and said, here is the perfect stone for you to use. And you said, we don't like it. And you cast it off to the side. It was prophesied this would happen. He says, which has become the head of the corner. You tried to get rid of it. God subverted you guys. God took that stone that you cast off to the side and said, you didn't like my best. You didn't like my son. You don't want him. It doesn't matter. And he took that stone and he made it the head of the corner. And then he says in verse number 12, a great verse. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Just pause for a second here. Imagine with me, if you will, the boldness that it would take on Peter's part to stand in front of this specific group and say what he just said. You know, it's one thing to go over to the board of supervisors and to uh, maybe to point a finger at, some, at, some, at them and complain about a decision they've made. Uh, yeah, it gets broadcast live. Yeah, people will write about it. Um, but what recourse do they really have against you? But then to go before this ruling body, the Sanhedrin, as crooked and corrupt as they have been in the past, the fact that they just had Jesus killed, and to boldly in front of them stand there and say, I did this in the name of Christ. You tried to have him killed. God you know, resurrected him anyways and made him the head, the most important thing, the cornerstone. And to add to that, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the most important stone in the building. Jesus Christ is the most important name in all of history. Now, having said all of that, I want you to look at what is said next. Verse number 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. No doubt you have thought about that particular phrase at some point in the past or heard a sermon preached about that phrase at some point in the past. Took note that they had been with Jesus. Imagine for a second, if you will, being able to spend just a little bit of time in the physical presence of Jesus. Now, we know that he is omnipresent like God the Father is omnipresent. Although Jesus still has a physical body, like he had in biblical times, because he is alive today and continues to remain alive. But imagine being able to spend this afternoon with Jesus. He rides home with you in your vehicle. Would you turn your music off? He walks in the front door. Is there anything you would take down off the walls? He comes and he sits in your living room. Is there anything you would remove or hide? You eat with him. You talk with him. Would it be awkward? Maybe a little at first, knowing who he is. You, we, we sometimes think that if, 
any man were to sit down and talk with Jesus, he would just automatically get saved. How could you not? Yet we ought to remember what the Jews did to him, and they knew him. People from his own hometown watched him grow up and had no interest whatsoever in what he had to offer. Imagine. Spending time with Jesus Christ, how do you think it would change you? How do you think it would affect you? I think there is no doubt that it would affect us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us about how spending time with the Word of God will affect us. It says, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Changed into the same image. Every day, the child of God looks into the Word of God, or at least you ought to, looks into the Word of God, has fellowship with the Son of God, and is to be changed by the Spirit of God into the glory of God, into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So the title of this morning's sermon is this, Your Aroma is Telling on You. What do you, what do you mean by that? Your aroma is telling on you. You can often tell where someone has been, in certain cases, based upon their aroma, right? I go to the chiropractor's office down here, and they've got Black Labrador in there named Buddy. And uh, I don't, might be Buddy. No, I'm, that might have been the dog that died. I don't remember. But anyways, I think his name's Buddy. And he always comes up and sniffs my pant legs, you know, when I sit down in there. And, uh, you know, why? Well, he wants to find out where I've been. And he smells my dogs on it. And, oh, yeah, she smells pretty. You know, and uh, or he smells like a like a jerk. You know, uh, and as he sit there and smells my legs and wants to find out where I've been. And sometimes when I come home after we've been eating, you know, the dogs will come running up and they'll be just sniffing my pants. Man, I smell that McDonald's. Oh, that's some good yummy McDonald's you guys were in. And it's just I carried that aroma with me. Some aromas are not so good. I remember you know when I was a kid growing up, um, we would sometimes go to the auction house on a Saturday night and see what the auction was. But man, when you open the doors to that auction house. There was just a wall of smoke that would exit that uh, exit that place. You just walk in, it's like you couldn't even see. The whole building was just so full of you know smoke, uh, cigarette smoke in there. Uh, and you know what we smelled like when we left? Well, cigarette smoke. Y'all like campfires? I love campfires. You know, my roommate uh, was from Tonga, a little island in the South Pacific, and part of their traditional dress was the men wore skirts. Uh, they called them lava lavas, and for the dress times, they would wear a black skirt, a wraparound skirt, and then they would wear a, 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 a basket-weaved skirt, basically, on top of that. And it would have special designs put into that basket weave that they weaved themselves. They would weave it, and then they would put a pattern on it, put it up over top of the fire, and the smoke would, you know, the soot from the smoke would deposit itself on that uh, basket weave, and then they'd flip it over, pull the pattern off, and now you have this nice pattern of smoke there on that, you know, of, of uh, soot on that basket weave. And then they would take it and they'd wrap it around in themselves and it looked cool. Well, he kept his underneath his bunk. He slept above me, which meant that my bunk smelled like a campfire all the time. I loved it. It was great. It reminded me of home. We had a wood stove, you know, to keep our house warm growing up. I loved the smell of the wood smoke. But I tell you what, you carry it with you for sometimes days if you don't uh, take a shower, right? Uh, sometimes I'll smell the kid's hair like, yep. He was at a fire you know, a few, a few days ago because I could still smell it in his hair. Your aroma tells things about you. Tells you if you've been eating. Tells you if you've been bad. 
tells about where you have been. If you've been working in the garden, we can smell those tomatoes on you. Uh, or if you've been working in the flower garden, we can smell those pansies on you. Uh, we can smell the smelly smell of the flowers or where you've been, and your aroma tells us some a few things about you. If you've been with Christ, it's going to be noticed. People are going to smell it, so to speak. If you've been with Christ, how is it even possible to go in to spend time with God and for it not to have rubbed on us in some way so that others can see it? The fact is that it does. And when you spend time with Christ, it's going to change, one, it's going to change your love. The first thing, it's going to change your love. You're going to love the people of God. You're going to love the Word of God. You're going to love the things of God. You're going to love the house of God. Your love is going to change when you spend time with God. Because when you spend time with Christ, because you're going to start to love the things that He loves. You know who God loved? God loved that beggar sitting outside the beautiful gate of the temple. God loved that beggar so much that He sent His only Son to die on the cross for him, to be killed by the Sanhedrin, by the Jews, for that man right there. God loved that man so much that He was willing to also heal that man and to use that miracle as a as a means to see these thousands of people saved on that day. And you see, Peter and John spent time with Jesus. And you know how it affected Peter and John? They stopped fishing. They had more important things to do. They were going to go and seek that man out. They didn't know that yet, but they were simply dedicated themselves to God. And when God opened this door of opportunity to go and reach out to this man. They did it, and then God healed that man by the, in the name of Jesus Christ. God caused that man to rise up and be able to suddenly, miraculously walk and jump and run for the first time in his life. You see, Peter and John's love changed. On a normal day, they might have gone up to the temple on the Sabbath day on their own or with their family. But on this particular day, they were preachers. On this day, it wasn't just a Sabbath day for them. It was a soul-winning day for them. Why on earth would they go to the temple otherwise? They don't need the sacrifices anymore. They don't need to go there and offer sacrifices anymore. So why would Peter and John go to the temple then? Good question. To witness, that's why. Because that's where the people were. You go to the temple on a Saturday because that's where the religious people are that need to hear about Jesus Christ. And so that's where they went. You see, their love changed after they spent time with Jesus. And now their love focused on that man. Even though they knew that what they had done could get them in trouble, they still loved that man enough to potentially sacrifice themselves for it. Your loyalty will change, number two. It'll change your loyalty. Their loyalty was put to the test. Look at verse number 13. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. You know, this, this term boldness here in this situation carries a lot of meaning. Again, you've got to imagine, he is standing in front of this ruling body of men, and these aren't country bumpkins. These are the learned men. These are the guys with PhDs after their name, if they had PhDs back then. These are the guys that are well-respected. They have studied Everybody looks up to them in their opinions concerning the scriptures and their wisdom. These are the men that are good at speaking. They have silver tongues. 
and they have great influence. Who are Peter and John? The rednecks, <laughs> simply speaking. They're fishermen. They're blue-collar workers, not silver-tongued. We know that about Peter for sure. <laughs> not silver-tongued. Not, not with the high school diploma, nor the college degree, and certainly nothing after that. They didn't have any letters after their name. They were unlearned. And here they stand boldly before these men and are not ashamed of themselves. They're not ashamed of the message that they have been bringing. They stand there boldly before these men and declare Jesus Christ. You see, it's very easy for us to get intimidated by a scientist or by an educated atheist. It's very easy for us to get intimidated by somebody that has 100,000 arguments against God and to think, well, I don't know enough. I'm unlearned. I haven't studied enough or memorized enough. I haven't taken enough classes. I need more degrees or diplomas on my wall before I can attempt to win somebody with a college degree to the Lord or before I can attempt to argue on the Lord's behalf. I am not prepared, but Peter and John had been with Jesus. That was their schooling. That was when God taught them. Jesus taught them through his daily walking and living. They learned the heart of God. They learned the heart of Jesus, and it changed how they loved. It changed their loyalties. We're tested every day, too. Every hour. Whether we're going to be loyal to our God, or loyal to ourselves, or others. A faith that can't be tested isn't faith and cannot be trusted. So our faith is continually tested. I think it's interesting they consider them to be unlearned and ignorant. They weren't teachers, that's for sure. They hadn't spent much time in the classroom, more than likely. They probably grew up under the tutelage of their fathers, learning how to fish. And that when they became an adult one day, they were going to take over the family business of fishing. And then they were going to train their children to do the same, to go out and to fish. And that was how it was going to work. But God changed some things and changed their loyalty. No longer were they loyal to the family business, so to speak, but now they were loyal to the Lord's business. What was the concern that these Sanhedrin had? Let's go back to the passage again. In verse 15, they send them out so that they could talk amongst themselves. In verse 16, here's what they said amongst themselves. What shall we do to these men? For then indeed a notable miracle had been done by them is, is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. In other words, they're saying, well, what are you going to do with these guys? They haven't really broken any laws, and it's for sure that they have done a pretty significant miracle, and the whole city's buzzing about it. We can't hide it at this point. We don't like what they're doing. We certainly don't like that they're using the name Jesus, but they've got too much goodwill from the people right now. We can't touch them without dirtying ourselves up. Well, you could just feel the corruption oozing from these guys. How can we hurt them without affecting our popularity amongst the people? So what do we do? Verse 17, but that it spread no further. What were they really worrying about? They were worried that the message that Peter and John were preaching by, about Jesus Christ was going to spread further. You know, later, <clears throat> Gamaliel 
brings in uh, the apostles and he is trying to convince them and he beats them and he's trying to convince them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. Gamaliel on the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, a teacher of the Apostle Paul when the Apostle Paul was a, uh, a Pharisee before he was Paul. And he said, well, listen, if this message that they're preaching is of God, there's not a thing we can do to stop it anyways. But if it's not of God, then it's just going to fizzle out. So we really don't need to be that concerned about it. Hey, praise the Lord that the message of Jesus Christ has never fizzled out over the thousands of years that it has continued. What messages can we talk about that have not fizzled out over thousands of years? So many philosophies and ideologies and religions have gone to the wayside, have gone into being completely unknown. But not, the Jesus, not Jesus Christ. Now in Sunday school, and by the way, if you weren't here for Sunday school, shame on you, you should be here for Sunday school. We're talking about, we're studying the history of the church. And the devil came up to, to a point where he realized, I can't persecute the church out of existence. I can't destroy it. So instead, I'm going to pervert it and I'm going to change it. And so we've been talking about uh, what's been going on around the world throughout history concerning the church. We've made it up through the Reformation period right now. Talking about John Calvin, I encourage you to uh, come and join us next Sunday morning in Sunday school as we continue that study. Uh, if you want to catch up, uh, you can go on to the church website. There's a tab there with the podcast on it, and you can catch up on all of our sermons, especially those are on there on that podcast. And anywhere you have podcasts, you can find it there as well. It's called Straight from the Pulpit. I come back to this. You see, what is their main concern? It's that the message doesn't spread. You see, I don't think the devil is quite too concerned how many cars we have out here in our parking lot. Now, he does not want me to be able to get up and boldly preach Christ. But I think he's less concerned with how we arrive than he is with how we leave. I don't think he really cares so much about how much fire burns here inside this building, so long as it gets doused when we walk out those doors. So long as we don't take the fire of God with us to our homes and our families. So that we don't take that to school, that we don't take that to work, so that we don't take that to our neighborhoods and to our government buildings, that we don't take the fire of God with us in our hearts for righteousness, but also the fire of the gospel to spread to those who need to hear it. He does not care how brightly it burns inside this room, so long as we don't take it out there and increase the number of people who are in this room. They're sitting there and they're conferring about Peter and John. I wonder to myself, what does, what does the devil think about Shenandoah Baptist Church? I don't know if they have like a top 10 wanted, you know, list of, of Christians, those who are the most effective. Maybe a list of churches that they need to work especially hard on to try to destroy the pastor or the deacons or other influential godly people within that church. I can't help but imagine that there are certain ones that they pay special attention to. Not because of how bad they are, but because of how good they are. Because the devil does not want us to be successful in our endeavors for the Lord. I wonder to myself, what does he have to say? What do we do about that little church, Shenandoah Baptist Church? Or even worse, are we not even on their radar? Because we're not doing anything. 
Are you on the top 100 most wanted list of Christians that they're putting a little extra effort into trying to tear us down? Or are you not even on the radar? Now, I don't know that those things exist. My point is, is this. You see, the gates of hell are not going to withstand the church when we start marching and moving and attacking wickedness. But that means we've got to start marching and moving and attacking wickedness. But too often we hide within our own walls. And that is where the decay begins. And the death of so many churches, because we do not march outside of these walls. We see, but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightway threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. They called them back in and they commanded them, do not teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered, well, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. In his way, he says this, so obey God or obey you. You tell me what's right. In other words, God has told me that I am to preach this message in the name of Jesus Christ. You have told me not to. You are directly opposed to God. Who do you think I ought to obey? You tell me. If you were in my place, who would you obey? He says, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. I have experienced Jesus. I can't help but talk about it. How does that apply to us? When you got saved, you came face to face with Jesus Christ. You have experienced Jesus. I don't want to talk about some Jesus experience, you know, like the, the modern churches use. That's a little weird, but uh, you have experienced Jesus. If you've come face to face with him via the word of God, and it necessarily must change you. Hey, by the way, in order to become a Christian, you don't need to change. But understand this, that becoming a Christian will inevitably change you in good ways. Necessarily so. They tried to outlaw soul winning, but they could not do it. It will change your love. It will change your loyalty. It will change your life. Like I said before, you don't change your life in order to get saved, but if you get saved, your life is going to change. Necessarily so. I end with this thought. <clears throat> if you read the Bible through in 2023 this year, you don't have to tell people. It's going to be obvious. If you've been going to the gym for several months and working out, you're not going to have to tell people. They're going to notice. If you've been spending time with Jesus, you're not going to have to tell people. They're going to notice. I heard a story about a man riding an elevator. One of the ladies in the elevator said, uh, well, somebody's deodorant is failing. The man responded, well, I know it's not mine because I'm not wearing any. If you spend time with Jesus, it's going to affect your spiritual aroma. People are going to notice it. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Yes, we're supposed to change. Old things are supposed to pass away. We're supposed to begin behaving in a new way. 
In 2 Corinthians 2.14, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the Savior of His knowledge by us in every place. It shows, it manifests around us. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the Savior of death unto death, and to the other the Savior of life unto life. Harry Ironsides was the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago for a time. And he uh, came face to face with a well-known atheist one day. They wanted to have a debate, a discussion. So the atheist challenged him to this debate. And Harry Ironside says, okay, I'll agree to it under one condition. I will bring 300 people who claim their life is better because of Jesus. If you can bring 300 people who claim that their life is worse because of Jesus. Needless to say, the debate never took place. John 10.10 says, I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. This morning, I ask a couple questions of you. One, are you saved? Have you come face to face with Christ and chosen of your own free will to believe in who he is and what he has done on that cross to not only save you from the penalty of your sins, but to bear the guilt of it as well? And chosen to place your faith and your trust in Him for your eternal security in heaven. Have you done that? If not, let today be the day of salvation. Christian, how are you smelling? How are you smelling spiritually? Is it a trial (laughs) to be around you sometimes? Or can people just tell you've been spending time with God? The unsaved may not know what's so different about you or why, but they will recognize that there's something different about you. Sometimes you do have to say, I'm not going to use those words. I'm not going to go to these places. I'm not going to say those things. And however that affects my business, it affects my business. And then people are going to notice in that way. And then other times they're not going to be able to put their finger on exactly why you're different. And they may ask, but you ought to have a different smelling savor about you. One that is sweet to the Lord and sometimes pungent to the lost. But I tell you, it'll be sweet-smelling savor to your brothers and sisters in Christ, too. So your aroma is telling on you today. What does it have to say about you? Not just your aroma here in church. We could all put on a nice smell for church, right? But everywhere. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. Maybe the Lord has worked in your heart this morning concerning something. If you're not sure you're saved this morning, would you come forward when the piano plays and meet me at the front and I can take my Bible and show you how to know 100% for sure you're saved? Christian, if the Lord's worked in your heart concerning your, 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 your spending time with God and not having such a sweet-smelling aroma spiritually, maybe the Lord's worked in your heart. If that's the case, and if you've got something that needs to be dealt with, Between you and the Lord, would you just come forward and get it dealt with here at the altar?